Hello, I'm Brett Dillon, and this is The Movie Chronicles. Wait! I sense a movement in the Force. It must have been Terry night yesterday. This week we're tripping to 1960. Our theme is art and artists. The way Hollywood treats this subject reeks. The meme used is that the artist has to suffer for his art. Bollocks! Bollocks, I say! There are only three things an artist need do. Observe. Cogitate on what he has observed. Transfer the result of that thought into his art form. No suffering involved, you'll note. Hollywood seems to believe this is not visually interesting enough. Meanwhile, artists go on creating without apparently being visually interesting. I'll now step down from my soapbox before I start blowing bubbles out my butt, which brings us to the first film I want to discuss. I chose this in honour of the Penguin Book's obscenity case of 1960. It is... Sons and Lovers. Director, Jack Cardiff. Script, Gavin Lambert and T.E.B. Clark. Director of Photography, Freddie Francis. And editor, Gordon Pilkington. Music, Mario Nassimbene. Actors. Trevor Howard, Dean Stockwell, Wendy Hiller, Mary Ur, Ernest Thesiger, Donald Pleasance, Rosalie Critchley, and Susan Travers. I am not a fan of the novels of D. H. Lawrence. The short stories I have no problems with. The novels are something else. I struggle with them in much the same way as I see director Jack Cardiff struggling with the prose to bitch-slap a film out of it. The best he can do is re-image Lawrence as A.J. Cronin. Cardiff was aware of this problem and his solution. In later years, he said, The films that I'm most proud of, the film, for instance, that I made under great difficulty, Sons and Lovers, 1960, I wanted to make it into a good film because the book was marvellous and I didn't want to let the author down. The struggle began in the 1950s, when American producer Jerry Wald bought the book, intending it to be a project for Montgomery Clift and Marilyn Monroe. Clift declined that team, and thank God that version was never made. Jerry now thought of teaming James Dean with Marilyn. Dean's death ended that dream, and another probably awful adaptation. The project was put on hold while Jerry mulled things over, and finally decided to make the film in the UK. If director Jack Cardiff had made this film in the 70s, he might not have had such a struggle. Lawrence wrote at an interesting time. He was the poster boy for what was unfit to print. He wanted to write the way people really spoke. He wanted his characters to have sex, sexuality, and be able to write about that experience. Film, on the other hand, is a mass-market product. It tends to be censorious and culturally conservative. Cardiff comes to the unlaurentian conclusion that free love is impossible without equality between the sexes. Without this, the man always wins. 
Paul, the hero of this story, manages to have sex, but it is always unsatisfactory because of this power imbalance. Being a guy, he believes the problem is always with his partner, who cannot meet him as an equal. He never asks himself why he doesn't try to meet them as an equal. Former child actor Dean Stockwell was heavily criticised for his performance in this film. To make matters worse, producer Jerry Wald saddled his director with this US actor to try and increase the film's box office appeal. There is actually nothing wrong with Dean's performance. The real problem is that he is just an inappropriate choice for the part. Richard Burton would have given us the real thing. Trevor Howard gives one of the best performances of his career as a minor locked into a loveless marriage. He is the only actor, it seems to be, who treats the text with anything less than reverence. The hero of the tale is Paul Morrill, who comes from a mining community not far from Nottingham. He is the type of character that features in the kitchen sink drama coming forth from the angry young men in the theatre of the late fifties in Britain. He wants to rise above his class and is constantly bumping his head against the glass ceiling. He identifies with his mother, another character this year with a mother complex. Mostly, I suspect, because his father wants him to go down pit as a mark of worker solidarity. The heart of the film is Paul's love interests, for which I'll merely say that Paul comes out of it looking like a callow youth. There are two movies from 1960 that dealt with the destructive power of mothers, this film and Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Billy Wilder nailed it in Some Like It Hot. Nobody's perfect. Author D. H. Lawrence was born on September the 11th, 1885, in Nottinghamshire, England, and he died in 1930. D. H. came from a mining town background. He won a scholarship to high school. This was in the days when it was thought to be unnecessary to educate the lower classes. By 1901, he was working as a clerk in a factory. He caught pneumonia, and that career ended. From 1902 to 06, he was a pupil teacher at Eastwood School. This allowed him in 1908 to receive his training certificate from University College, Nottingham. In 1910, his mother died from cancer. This was not a good time in his life. By 1911, after another bout of pneumonia, D.H. decided to write full-time. He was working on Sons and Lovers at the time. While he remained committed to his decision, he also courted controversy. In 1912, D.H. had to flee Britain with Frieda, an older married woman. The couple returned to England in 1913 and became friends with Catherine Mansfield and John Middleton Murray, both of whom I'll talk about later when we come to the movie Leave All Fair, 1985. In a stroke of luck in 1914, Frieda got her divorce. D.H. and Frieda were now able to marry. In 1916-17, he seems to have experimented with homosexuality. He later claimed to have had an affair when he was 16. The rest is hearsay, as far as I've been able to discover. He was persecuted for having a German wife during World War I, and this led to his decision to abandon Britain in 1919. 
proving the Kiwi saying that those with brains emigrated and the rest were left to inbreed. Works made into films and the dates of the dates of publication are 1913, Sons and Lovers, 1915, The Rainbow, 1920, Woman in Love, 1923, Kangaroo, 1926, The Rocking Horse Winner, 1928, Lady Chatterley's Lover, and 1930, The Virgin and the Gypsy. Director Jack Cardiff was born on September 18, 1914, in Great Yarmouth, England, and he died in 2009. Jack was born to music hall parents and began professional life as an actor. At the age of 15, in 1929, he started working for British International Pictures as a camera assistant, clapper boy, and production runner. By 1931, he was working on The Skin Game, director Alfred Hitchcock. Jack became a camera operator and cinematographer for London Films in 1935. In 1943, he began a collaboration with Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger as second unit cameraman on The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. They moved him up to director of photography on A Matter of Life and Death, 1946, Black Narcissus, 1947, and The Red Shoes, 1948. Clearly ambitious, Jack became a director in 1958 with Intent to Kill. He finally achieved fame with Sons and Lovers, which won seven Oscars, and Jack received a Golden Globe for Best Director. From the 70s onwards, he concentrated on cinematography. On the craft of directing, Jack Cardiff is quoted as saying, Most directors who have been around for a while acquire a gaunt, soul-scarred look associated with fighter pilots who have survived a war. Actor Trevor Howard was born on September 29, 1913, in Cliftonville, England. He died in 1988. Trevor trained as a stage actor at RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. He made his stage debut in 1934 while still in his tutelage. Trevor joined the army in 1942 as second lieutenant in the South Staffordshire Regiment. He was discharged in 1943 for mental instability and having a psychotic personality. This was just in time to begin his movie career with The Way Ahead, 1944. This brought him to the attention of director David Lean, who brought him to the attention of Noel Coward for the role of Alex in the film adaptation of Brief Encounter, 1945. Not only am I a fan of Trevor's work, I love what he had to say about acting. Good God, he said. Some of the young actors say they don't know whether they wanted to be actors or not. I cannot understand this. To me, it is like saying you can't make up your mind whether or not you love a certain woman. If you don't, then take a walk. In acting, as in love, there's no place for indifference. History, in 1960, was right up itself, all right? On... January the 15th. Three Tales debuted on TV. This was the first televisual anime. January the 25th. In Washington, D.C., USA, the National Association of Broadcasters reacted to the payola scandal by threatening fines for any disc jockey who accepted money for playing records. The grift had to change with the times. 
February the 9th, Joanne Woodward received the first star on Hollywood's Walk of Fame. March the 3rd, Elvis Presley returned home from Germany, where he had been doing his military service. Lucille Ball divorced her husband, Desi Arnaz, after 19 years of marriage. The divorce ended the I Love Lucy TV show. March the 5th, Albert Corder took his iconic photograph, Gerio Heroica, of Che Guevara in Havana. May the 3rd, The Fantastics, the world's longest-running musical, opened in New York City, USA. It kept on running for the next 42 years because nobody could catch it. June the 1st, New Zealand's first television station began broadcasting from the city of Auckland. July the 11th, Harper Lee published To Kill a Mockingbird, which went on to win the Pulitzer Prize. August the 17th, obscure pop group The Beatles began a 48-night residency at the Indra Club in Hamburg, West Germany. November the 2nd, Penguin Books were found not guilty of obscenity in the case over the publication of D.H. Lawrence's novel Lady Chatterley's Lover. We stay in England for our next film, a favourite of Martin Scorsese. It is Peeping Tom. Director Michael Powell, script Leo Marx, director of photography Otto Haller, editor Noreen Ackland, music Brian Easdale, actors Carl Bohm, Moira Shearer and Miles Mallison. It is difficult to say what genre Peeping Tom is in. It works on the level of a thriller, the discoverer of the body in the studio while the killer watches from a lighting gantry, a murder story, a fable against psychology, a look at modern society that allows atrocities to be performed in the pursuit of knowledge, or maybe it's a satire. There are some very funny sequences. A movie focus puller is engaged in making a home movie made up of images of the woman he has killed. Why is he German, by the way? It was controversial subject matter when first released, as it is told from the killer's perspective and makes you sympathize with him. It's rather tame today. Murder, as an expression of art, is not so strange an idea to us. Powell's film was seriously misread on first release. The public was experiencing an aspect of life they didn't want to know about. In focusing on this, the audiences were missing the point. There are several things going on in the film, all linked by a theme of vision. There is the structural aspect of referencing other films. From the opening sequence of an anonymous whistling killer, taken from Fritz Lang's M, 1931, to the very many Hitchcock references. These are reflections in thought and deed. There is a theme of psychological obsession. This can be broken down into smaller parts. The obsession of the artist. The director wants the perfectly structured film. Our hero wants the perfect shot. Sexual obsession. 
and the obsession with observed reality, which is linked to an obsession to analyze and understand what is observed. In one and the same year, Hitchcock and Powell released movies about shy serial killers. Is Mark really shy, or is this scientific detachment? Is he insane, or continuing his father's project, collecting the data in an unethical way? Are the other characters voyeurs? They buy the pornography he makes, they buy the sensational newspapers, and they buy into the notion of the legitimate invasion into a person's privacy. Director Michael Powell was born on September 30th, 1905, in Beckersbourne, England, and he died in 1990. Michael began his career in 1925 in Nice, France, under director Rex Ingram. By 1928, he was back in England as a stills photographer. In this capacity, Michael worked for Alfred Hitchcock on Champagne. It is one of the great ironies of film history that both Michael and Alfred released movies about voyeurism in the same year. In 1931, Michael went into partnership with Jerry Jackson to make quota quickies. British law required a certain quota of British films to be made each year. This led, in 1939, to his meeting Emmerich Pressburger when the pair were called in to rescue the Alexander Corder project, The Spy is Black. A bromance ensued. They went into partnership and formed The Archers. In 1960, he released his solo project, Peeping Tom. This sick, disgusting examination of sexual perversity effectually ended his career. He had this to say about the medium of film. My master in film, Bunuel, was a far greater storyteller than I. It was just that in my films, miracles occur on the screen. Of course, all films are surrealist. They are because they are making something that looks like a real world, but isn't. Births were at the butt end of the business. On... January the 18th, Mark Rylance, the British actor, theatre director and playwright. March the 13th, Adam Clayton, British-born member of rock group U2. April the 1st, Michael Prade, the British actor. May the 2nd, Stephen Daldry, the English director. May the 15th, Julian Jarrold, the English director. May the 17th, John Payne, the English actor. June the 12th, Corinne Chabi, the French actor. June the 15th, Michel Larocque, the French actor. On a lighter note, there's The Testament of Orpheus, which premiered in Paris on February the 18th. Critic felt it personified Cocteau's statement that everything that is explained or proven is vulgar. Le testament d'Orphée, ou ne me demandez pas pourquoi. The Testament of Orpheus. Director, script and actor, Jean Cocteau. Director of photography, Roland Pontonzo. Editor, Marie-Joseph Yoyotte. Actors, Charles Asvenor, Yul Brunner, Jean-Pierre Liod, Pablo Picasso, 
and Roger Vadim. Jean Cocteau creates a surrealist autobiography from the detritus of his life. The intent is to investigate what it means to be a poet-artist. He wrote of this his last film, I would emphasize that this film is the contrary of an intellectual or art film. I should like to be able to say, I don't think, therefore I am. All thought paralyzes action, and a film is a succession of acts. In Le Testament d'Orfe, events follow one another as they do in sleep. The film opens in a movie studio with a minimal set. The set keeps changing, and Cocteau keeps appearing in it as an 18th century fop. He is searching through time for the scientist who has invented bullets that travel faster than light. These put him out of his misery. At this point, the film proper begins. Cocteau enters a half-world, populated by an earlier film about Orpheus. This world also contains the actors who play the characters. Guided by his muse, he searches for the goddess. Through this voyage, which echoes Dante's Divine Comedy, he must protect a flower which is, or represents, the blood of a poet. Through this trippy trip, he learns the poet cannot be destroyed. The film is populated by Cocteau's friends, of whom Yul Brunner and Pablo Picasso are now the most recognizable. Cocteau's favorite special effect seems to be running the film backward. A character emerges dry from the sea. A ripped flower is put back together. Swirling smoke forms into a bubble. My favorite sequences involve the cost of fame to a poet, of which the autograph-hunting policeman from the first Orpheus film is the best gag. The imagery is simple, the symbology dense, to the point that at times I felt Cocteau was speaking a private language. The man-horse, the Greek vase eyes. What do these mean? Perhaps the transformative act of poetry? Cocteau gets his reputation at the gypsy camp when his photo is restored by the fire. All these things hint at an influence from Picasso on the imagery. Director Jean Cocteau was born on July the 5th, 1889 in Maison Lafitte, France, and he died in 1963. He led an exemplary artistic life as author, poet, and filmmaker. The only sour note in his career occurred when he was accused of being a collaborator at the end of World War II. When he was accused of fraternizing with the Germans, he replied, Why should the destiny of a poet change? My realm is not of this world, and the world resents me for not following the rules. I will always suffer the same injustice. By 1929, Jean published the novel Les Enfants Terribles, made into a film in 1950. In 1946 was when he directed Beauty and the Beast, and 1949, Orpheus, for which this film is a kind of remake sequel. Jean had a good line about being French. What's a Frenchman? An Italian in a bad mood. This indicates that, like James Joyce, he wanted to be a citizen of the world. He also said, In Paris, everyone wants to be an actor. Nobody is content to be a spectator. Jean saw film as that temple of sex 
with its goddesses, its guardians, and its victims. He said of the movies, film will only become an art when its materials are as inexpensive as pencil and paper. When he was asked who had the greatest influence on him, he replied, Harry Langdon. Deaths were doing it. On. January the 4th, Albert Camus, the French writer, born 1913. January the 2nd, Neville Shute, the English writer, born 1899. February the 29th, Jacques Becker, the French director, born 1906. April the 5th, Peter Fluellen Davies, the English namesake of Peter Pan, born 1897. April the 25th, George Ralph, the English actor, born 1888. May the 27th, George Zacco, the English actor, born 1886. And finally, on August the 10th, Frank Lloyd, the English director, born 1886. Next episode will be a saga, which is like a mage, except more stupid, hence the yes. To catch up on more films from 1960, purchase the ebook Movie Chronicles 1960, available at an e-store near you. In the meantime, the reason artists are blind is because art is in the eye of the beholder.